I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 10. You've been considering Jesus' parables. And we've come this morning to begin to consider the parable of the Good Samaritan. But we're not going to actually consider it this morning. We're going to consider the lead up into it, the reason why it was given. We've been reminded that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and therefore the most important question facing each one of us is this, what must I do to be saved? Our days are quickly slipping away. We will soon be gathered to our fathers. We will go the way of all flesh. We will be summoned before our Creator and Judge to give an account of our lives lived in this world. And depending upon our sentence, we will enter into the blessedness of eternal life or we will experience the horror of eternal death. In other words, we will go either to heaven or to hell. The question each one of us faces is this. What will it be for you? What will it be for me? And dear ones, we must never rest until we are assured that we possess eternal life. Today we approach the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I say approach because we're not going to be considering the parable this morning. Instead, we're going to look at the parable's backstory, the historical context, the reason why it was given. Many of our Lord's parables come with a backstory in which Jesus addresses an immediate situation or answers a question. And so here, this parable was spoken in response to a question asked as how one may obtain eternal life. Follow with me then as I read verses 25 through 29 of Luke chapter 10. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with, and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And we will consider Jesus' parabolic answer to that question, God willing, next Lord's Day. Now, this morning, as we come to open up this passage, before we come to some concluding applications, we're going to look, first of all, at the lawyer's test question, and then the lawyer's correct response, and then Jesus' commendation and commandment, and then concluding applications. Notice, first of all, the lawyer's test question in verse 25. And a, behold, a certain lawyer stood up, 
and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now that is a question that each one of us should have upon our lips, if not upon our hearts at all times. Let's consider the lawyer's test question under three points. First of all, consider the identity of the questioner. Luke tells us that a lawyer came to Jesus with a question. Now, we must understand that he is not a lawyer as we would think of one today, an attorney who defends clients before civil or criminal courts. You see, lawyers in Israel in Jesus' day, they were experts in the law of Moses. They were basically identical with the scribes who both copied and taught the law. Some lawyers traveled from place to place teaching in the synagogues and schools scattered throughout Israel, and such was the man here who questioned Jesus. Notice further that this lawyer, as we consider his identity, he was well-mannered, he was respectful. Notice he stood up to address Jesus. He might have been sitting, it was a posture of teachers to sit and their students to stand. Notice he was seating, apparently, and he stood up to address Jesus. You see, in the first century culture, teachers sat down to teach their students. It was a mark of respect for our Lord that this lawyer, himself a teacher, stood up to address the Lord Jesus as teacher. He put him before Jesus, as it were, as his student. Notice, secondly, the apparent motives behind his question. Now, this man may have approached Jesus simply because he was earnest to obtain eternal life. He had this question, perhaps plaguing his conscience. How may I obtain, how may I attain eternal life? I want to inherit eternal life. What must I do? And yet a more sinister purpose may also have prompted his question. He may have sought to discredit Jesus by his answer to his question. And two clues in the passage suggest that he might have approached Jesus with evil motives. First, Luke says his desire was to put Jesus to the test. And I don't think he came necessarily just to honor this rabbi by asking him his burning question. We often read of Jesus' enemies attempting to bring him into disrepute with test questions. In fact, this verb put to the test is used of Satan's temptation of Christ and of Israel's wicked testing of God in the wilderness. Secondly, that this man sought to justify himself before Jesus, we read in verse 29, in dodging his exhortation to love his neighbor as himself suggests a motive behind his question that was evil, as important as his question was. He was not innocent. It was posed to justify himself and to bring reproach upon Christ. I believe A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, his observation is correct. The spirit of this lawyer was evil 
He wanted to entrap Jesus. So that's the identity of the questioner and the apparent motives behind his question. Thirdly, as we consider the lawyer's test question, notice the issues underlying his question. Jewish Christian scholar Alfred Edersheim has observed that Hebrew lawyers in Christ's day were divided over the question of which had the greater merit before God, good works or religious study. Perhaps this lawyer wanted Jesus to help settle in his mind. Should I seek to inherit eternal life by a course of good works or through my rabbinical studies? And though this lawyer's motives were suspect at best, his view of meriting eternal life is grossly in error. But yet his question could not be more important. This man's question assumes a basic fact taught in the Bible. And that is eternal life is real. His question recognizes the fact that when we die, we don't cease to exist. We don't die like dogs whose spirit goes, his breath goes down into the earth, but it goes back to God who gave it. That we live on, indeed, we live on forever after our body dies. His question may have assumed that eternal life isn't just endless existence after death, but eternal life is a quality of life far more wonderful than we could ever experience in this life. And indeed, so the Bible teaches. In other words, this Jewish law expert believed that heaven and hell are real. The one was to be avoided and the other was to be pursued. He wanted to go to heaven when he died and not to hell. I trust that is our desire as we sit here this morning. Further, his question assumes that eternal life is not something that all men naturally possess. It's not the kind of ethos you get when you go to your average funeral today. That whoever died, however he lived in this life, he's going to heaven finally. No, this man didn't believe that all men naturally inherit eternal life. Eternal life is something that must be sought. Indeed, it is an inheritance that must be gained. But how is it to be inherited? This is the big question upon this man's mind. It is a question crucial to our eternal happiness and even to our present peace of mind. This was the burning question that occupied this lawyer's mind. But we must also see that the way this man framed his question presumes a lethal error in his thinking, an error that will prevent a person from inheriting eternal life if it is followed through. You see, like the rich young ruler, this Bible expert believed that eternal life can be earned. What may I do that I may inherit eternal life? 
And this fatal error underlies this man's question. He speaks of eternal life as an inheritance on the one hand, as something bestowed by God. And yet on the other hand, he speaks of it as if it may be gained by something that we do, that might be earned. That is something that we gain by merit. Sadly, he speaks for multitudes of poor, deluded people. You see, to mix law and grace in the matter of salvation, of trusting both in God's gift and our doing, has confused millions and kept countless sinners out of heaven and put them in hell. You see, he has his doctrine of salvation backwards. We are to go to the law to see our duty. We are to obey God's commandments. And yet we see that in our obedience, we fail and the law points us to a substitute, one who has perfectly obeyed the law in our stead. It's not something that sinners can do themselves. Sinners cannot earn eternal life. See, brethren, it's damnation that is earned. The wages that sin pays is death. But salvation from sin is a gift. Eternal life, like an inheritance that is given, it's not earned, it's received. Eternal life is God's free gift given through Jesus Christ and received not by works, but rather by the empty hand of faith, which is itself a gift of God. Romans 4 and verse 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Well, this man has this much right. Eternal life is indeed earned. But not by sinners. It is earned by the Savior. By Jesus' sinless life in perfect obedience to the law of God. And by his death, dying under the curse of God for those who believe in him. But this was his fatal flaw. We do not inherit eternal life by anything we do but only by faith in what Jesus Christ has done. So that's the lawyer's test question, his identity, his apparent motives, and the issues that underlie his question. Notice, secondly, Jesus' counter question in verse 26. And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And notice our Lord's response to the lawyer's question. He addresses the man as one who holds the scriptures in high regard. It was this man's daily study. And so with his counter question, our Lord points this man to the scriptures for his answer. Jesus assumes that he is not teaching anything new than what is already taught in the Bible. And the answer to his question is right before, he, right before his eyes, if he has but eyes to see. 
Jesus points him back to the scriptures. And before leaving this point, let us take note here of Jesus' evangelistic method with this man. First, he answers his question with a question. And he does this because he wants to draw out this man's understanding of the Bible. You are a lawyer, you're a teacher of the Bible, and you come to me with this question of how you may inherit eternal life. Well, what do you know from the Bible? And since this lawyer is an expert in the Old Testament, our Lord implies that all moral and spiritual questions, the answers to them, including this most important one, are resolved by a correct understanding of the scriptures. Go to the source, Jesus says to this man. Jesus teaches us that the Bible must be our careful and continual study. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is to the law and to the testimony that we must go if we would find answers to all of our questions. Second, Jesus displays love and patience in dealing with this man. And though he knows that this lawyer seeks to discredit him, notice that he deals very gently with him. Paul teaches that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, argumentative, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. You see, Jesus sought to instruct this man in the Bible's doctrine of eternal life so that he may come to experience that life himself. Notice thirdly, the lawyer's correct response in verse 27. <clears throat> Jesus asks, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. In other words, love the Lord your God with the totality of your being and your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer, in his answer, he correctly summarizes our duty as outlined by God's moral law. From Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, he summarizes our duty to God. We're to love God with all of our resources, all that we are. And then he followed our duty to our fellow man as derived from Leviticus 19.17. There it states it negatively. You're not to hate your neighbor. Positive implication is you're to love your neighbor. He correctly understood from God's law that it is that our overarching duty toward God and toward man is the duty of love. We are to love the Lord God with all of our being and we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Right there, we should realize how deficient we are when we answer this question ourselves. This 
law doesn't commend me. Yes, indeed, it commands me, but it condemns me. You see, this man responded correctly, but he was deficient in his understanding of the practical demands of neighbor love, as we're going to see, God willing, next time. And we know from his attempt to justify himself to escape his duty before God to love his neighbor. You see, he was content with knowing his duty without doing his duty. And that's a danger that we all fall into. We're content to know, but we're not bothered by not doing what we know. And that is the horns of, of the dilemma that Jesus thought to thrust this man onto. There's a lesson for us. We all live in the uncomfortable gap between knowing our duty and doing it. True Christians seek by God's grace to close that gap, to do what God commands by His grace working in and through us, that we can't roll up our sleeves and knuckle under, put our nose to the grindstone and please God by what we do, even if it's in obedience to his law, because our very best deeds are what? They are filthy. They're a stench in the nostrils of God, especially when we look to them to merit favor with God. You see, this man sought to live comfortably in his failure to love his neighbor as he ought, and indeed as God had given him some ability. But rather, he makes excuses to justify his disobedience to God. And we're pretty good at sleight of hand that way, aren't we? Notice, fourthly, you've seen the lawyer's test question, his correct response, Jesus' commendation, and commandment. Notice, fourthly, uh, notice fourthly, Jesus' commendation and commandment. Verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Notice his initial commendation. You see, Jesus commends this man for his right answer. He did know his duty, at least intellectually. But this lawyer resembled the disobedient son. You remember in another, in another parable of the Lord Jesus, he promised to obey his father's command to go out and work in his vineyard. But what did he do? He later refused to obey his father. This lawyer knew his duty, but was unwilling to do it. You see, the life of faith, according to the teaching of scriptures, is not defined simply as knowing, but as by doing. Jesus is not content with correct answers that do not lead to correct behavior. Correct answers without corresponding actions is it's a definition of hypocrisy. We say that we know, we love to do, we don't do. We show that we are hypocritical. Oh, how love I thy law. And then we make all kinds of excuses to justify ourselves not doing it. You see, we may call Jesus Lord and then not obey him at the last day. 
Many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord. And Jesus is going to say, I, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, lordship implies lawfulness, not lawlessness. And when we see our duty before us, when we fail, we have to run to Christ again and again for forgiveness. You see, blessing comes from not just knowing our duty, but doing it. Elsewhere, Jesus said to his own disciples, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. That would be Luke 13 and verse 17. This lawyer confessed his duty under law to his neighbor to love him. James, like Jesus, promises blessing to those who not only hear but put into practice God's commands. James 1 and verse 25, but to the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in all that he does. Again, brethren, let us notice that our gracious Lord commended this man for his knowledge of the Bible, even though he knew that he was deficient in his practice. For this reason, Jesus followed his exhortation with further instruction in the parable. So notice after his initial commendation, his insightful commandment. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. You see, Jesus wasn't content merely to commend this man for his right answer. He commanded him to put that answer into practice. If this you know is your duty, Jesus says, do it. And by commanding him to obey God's law, to inherit eternal life, our Lord wished to show him his grave error that would keep him out of heaven. By commanding him to seek life by obedience to the moral law. You see, the Lord Jesus was probing this man's conscience. Don't you see the great difference between what you're commanded, the bar is up here, and what you've done, you've only gone this far in your obedience to God, Jesus was seeking to show this man his sin. If this man examined the demands of the law of love by his own attitude toward his neighbor, his own actions toward him, he would see that he was utterly unfit to inherit eternal life. You see, Jesus knows that through the knowledge of the law, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, what Jesus is doing here, beloved, is he is addressing this lawyer according to this lawyer's own doctrine of salvation. If you're going to say do and live, go ahead, do and then live. This man believed that God granted eternal life upon the condition of his obedience to God's commandments. And therefore, Jesus exposes this man to his two fatal errors. 
First of all, God never grants salvation and the inheritance of heaven on the basis of personal merit. We cannot earn our way to heaven. If he seeks to inherit eternal life, his obedience to God's commandments must be perfect. It must be perpetual. There must be not the slightest failure of any kind. And is he willing to say that's what he's done? For this reason, Jesus quotes Leviticus 18 and verse 5. Do this and you will live. Now, we know that Jesus isn't commanding works righteousness here. Obviously, he's not. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You see, in its original context, Hebrews, or Leviticus 18 and verse 5, God's command to do and live was a promise to Israel. Not of eternal life, but of continued life and blessing in the promised land if they obeyed his law. He wasn't promising them heaven. He was promising them life and blessing in the land. But you see what the self-righteous in Israel did is they took God's promise of life and temporal blessing to the obedient and they turned it into a covenant of works by which if they obeyed the law, they believed they would merit heaven, eternal life, on the basis of that obedience. So God's bar is way up here and they brought the bar way down here. And they thought, well, if I can jump over that, you know, I'm going to gain eternal life. So Paul exposes the fatal error of those who seek salvation by the works of the law. Those who seek salvation by the works of the law place themselves under a curse. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law, that is those who use the law of God as a self-righteousness kit, as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. Nothing less was required by the law. Second, Jesus quoted the law to show this man that God gave the law not to save us from our sin, but rather to show us our sin by our failure to do our duty to God and to man. He did so so that we might seek a savior. Remember the penitent publican, God be merciful to me, the sinner. This man wasn't yet there. Romans 3 and verse 20 because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin, not conversion, but conviction. You see, brethren, each one of us is born with Adam's fallen heart. That we think that by our obedience, by our fig leaves, God won't be able to see our sin. And that, that error has committed multitudes beyond number to hell. Well, next time we'll ponder Jesus' answer to the lawyer's attempt to justify himself.
Notice finally, in closing, some concluding applications. Two points here. Let me speak first of all to those who wish to inherit eternal life. I trust you've come here this morning with a desire to go to heaven, to inherit eternal life, to be with Jesus and the angels and the saints of the ages when you die. Two things, first of all, see your need of eternal life. We all need eternal life. We weren't born with it. We're only born again when we receive it. And since we are born dead in our sins and under the wrath of God, we must be born again by the regenerating grace of God. We must be made new creatures in Christ. We must be drawn to Christ and given the evangelical graces of faith and repentance. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be what? You must be born again. Until then, we do not have eternal life. So understand that we do not inherit eternal life by anything we do, not by our Bible knowledge, not by our church attendance, not by our good works, not by our baptism or confirmation, not by our resolutions to become a better person, not by our hope to go to heaven when we die or any other thing. Eternal life is not gained by anything that we do. You must possess eternal life if you would escape eternal death. That is what we are all destined for unless God intervenes in his grace and gives us new life. You see, the lawyer knew this, but he was wrong about how eternal life could be inherited. You see, we can't be wrong here and live. See your need of eternal life. Secondly, go to the source of eternal life. This man went to Jesus. We need to go to Jesus. We need to believe Jesus. We need to trust in him. You see, this lawyer was right that eternal life is worth pursuing but he was dead wrong thinking that he could earn it. And that is why he asked Jesus the most important question. He didn't know that before him stood the Lord of life, he who confessed himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to heaven but through him. Eternal life is not earned by our doing, but is received by the empty hand of believing. What does Jesus say? John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let me say it again. If you don't seek eternal life in Jesus, you will perish in your sin. But if you trust him, if you trust his holy life, if you trust his atoning death, if you trust him, he will give you eternal life and you will never perish. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand, but you will live 
forever in heaven with him, even now building a place to receive you. John 3 and verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son, obey the Son to believe him and come to embrace him, he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In fact, we inherit eternal life the very moment we believe, the fullness of which we begin to experience in heaven and then all of its glory in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, and the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. There's only one way to heaven. It's through Jesus. Only one way into the kingdom of God. Only one way to inherit eternal life. It's through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And notice, secondly, for those who wish to show others how they may inherit eternal life. As you would show others from the Bible how they may gain eternal life, I've included a number of texts to help guide your witness and to shape your evangelistic presentation. First of all, let us show them their guilt before God by exposing them to his law, even as Jesus did. Romans 3 and verse 20, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Ask them, do you perfectly obey God? Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? Well, if anybody's honest, they can say, no, of course not. We have to take away their, their faulty notion that they're basically good people. Let them condemn themselves out of their own mouths. Men must be convinced by the law. They must be convicted before they will see their need of a Savior who has perfectly fulfilled the law for all who believe and has died under the penalty of its broken precepts. You see, the Apostle Paul, the greatest evangelist other than the Lord Jesus who has ever lived, he considered himself a good man before God brought the law upon his heart and convinced him that he's a very bad man. Romans 7 and verse 7, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, the Apostle Paul, he knew the, the tenth commandment all of his life but it was when God brought it home with Holy Spirit power upon his heart then he saw I am a very covetous man before he gave himself a pass and now he's asking God for mercy you see the law's convicting verdict registers in men's consciences 
and arrange them, arrange them as guilty before God. They have an amen corner in their conscience. God has written his law upon their heart. They may deny that, but when, you, when they hear it, they know it's true. And if they're honest, they'll say, yeah, you're right. God is right. Secondly, let us show them they cannot gain eternal life by obedience to God's law. You see, the law rightly commands and it powerfully convicts, but it is powerless to convert. Galatians 3, verses 10 and 11. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Verse 11. Now that no one is justified before the law or by the law before God is evident. The righteous man shall live by faith, by the gift of faith, not by the deeds of the law. You see, in the matter of our salvation, God's law has power to convict. Let me say it again. It has no power to convert. It will damn you, but it will not save you. As you use the law to convict consciences, show them the damning folly of seeking to justify themselves by obedience to its commands. That is to chain yourself to an anchor and be thrown overboard in the depths of the sea. If you think you can float that anchor by your works, now you're going straight to hell. By pointing them from Mount Sinai and Moses to Mount Calvary and Jesus, show them the works of Jesus Christ are that which saves us, not our own works. Point them from works to faith. Finally, let us show them that we inherit eternal life not by our obedience to God's law, but by faith in Jesus alone. Oh, this is a powerful text. Titus 3, verses 5 through 7. He, that is God, saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, ah, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's all of God and none of us. If you would inherit eternal life, may the Lord turn you from your works, which will damn you to Jesus Christ by faith, who will save you. Let's pray. Lord, Father, we have to confess that we came into this world with fig leaves around our waist. We thought that we could merit salvation. We could earn our way into heaven by the things that we do. And we snubbed you and your son and the way of salvation plainly set forth in the scriptures. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would run as fast and as furiously away from that kind of mentality as we can on the feet of faith and repentance to Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. So, Lord, have gracious dealings with us. If there are any here who have not faith 
Jesus Christ, we pray that you would open their eyes to see the kingdom of God. Show them Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Oh, enable them to trust in him and be saved. And for those of us who may fall back into this pattern of meritorious thinking, cause us to repudiate our works and to lay hold of Jesus' works and to follow him obedient to his commandments, not to earn our salvation, but because we've been saved, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk with them, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Hear us as we pray these things, O God, and demonstrate your power in gracious kindness to everyone in this room, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.